entire three chapters. I've kind of broken it up into uh, major sections. We're going to start at Genesis 6, verse 9 through 22, and then I'll point you to the next verses that we'll read as the story unfolds. The precious, authentic, sufficient, marvelous, wonderful word of God reads, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters among, upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Skip to verse 11 as we are going to read up to verse 24 of chapter 7. And the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were open. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and his son Shem and Ham and Jephthah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to his kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all Flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord continued 40 days on the earth. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering the 15 cubits deep, and the, all the flesh died and moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts of all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Chapter 9, verse 8 through 10. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us strength uh, to come to the house of the Lord. Oh, what a blessing it is to be here together. Father, I pray that you would just bless this uh, time as we dig into your word. I pray, Father God, that you will open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see you clearly. Thank you for your servant, Noah. Most importantly, thank you for your son and your servant, Jesus who makes life with you in your kingdom possible. So, Father God, we pray for the person who's come through the door this morning with a broken or heavy heart that you will minister to them. I pray, Father God, that you will allow us to see how great and how grander, how wonderful you are through your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On January 20th, 1937, one of the greatest, if not most disastrous floods that ever hit America hit Louisville. And many people had to leave the city and be evacuated from their homes. In fact, 175,000 persons had to leave their homes. On January 24th, uh, the rain hit so heavily that the power plant in Louisville went down, and as a result, the mayor called a martial law. The army had to come in. The floodwaters got so high that they reached 30 feet above flood level, and Louisville was in a state of crisis or a state of emergency. That flood caused a lot of pain and a lot of heartache, and a lot of people was put into very discomforting situations. But even in the midst of that flood, some good things happened. 
history records that at least two things most historians say happened. Number one is Louisville was forced to become more modern. The flood forced the city to, to become a little more up-to-date. And second, those who were Christians in the city responded to a gospel call and stepped up to be some of the first responders to people who were in distress. So in the midst of a chaotic flood, in the midst of this great pain, in the midst of the waters coming down, God still had a plan. And good still came out of it. As we read the story of Noah today, um, if you saw the movie and so many people are talking about it, it's just such a a hot topic. And as we read, you may have noticed that uh, the the story that you read was probably a lot different than the movie that you saw. And it's important that we uh, know what the Bible really says about the life of Noah and about God at work through this flood rather than Uh, Mere speculation. And if you hadn't seen the movie, well, what you will learn today without me giving you a great spoiler, because I I haven't seen the movie, I plan to see it, I look forward to seeing it, so this is not a bash against the movie, but what you will will probably notice is that in the story of Noah, there's no rock monsters. You'll notice that Noah didn't have to continually guess God's will and wonder if God had a plan in the midst of the storm. Noah wasn't consulted by any witch doctors, and Noah did not try to kill his grandchildren. One positive thing that came out of the the movie of Noah is that the popular uh, Bible app called YouVersion um, saw an increase of over 300% in the U.S. of people turning to the story of Noah. And globally, there's reportedly been a 245% increase of people going to that Bible app to read the story. So this movie is drawing people's attention back to the original story. And we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be happy for that. But we ought to desire to know what was God's intent in this story. And what can we learn in our lives by looking at this story? Well, the book of Genesis is written by a man by the name of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And Moses is is writing this book in order to, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in order to teach Israel about how things were in the beginning. And it's important that we realize that that, that Moses, as he is writing this story and as he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he is writing what God gave him. And this is not some mere fantasy. This is what actually happened. But imagine Israel receiving this story from Moses. Imagine how they would have been, been thinking about God and forced to think about their own lives. One theologian says this, When thinking about Moses writing to Israel, he says, suppose Israel first heard this message in Moab after their 40-year desert journey. This generation had witnessed God's judgment on their parents and their grandparents who died in the desert for their wickedness. The narrative's goal would then be to encourage Israel with that message that though God judges wickedness in his grace, he will save a remnant to continue his good kingdom on earth. 
As we look at the story of Noah, the big theme that we all are able to draw from the story and that we all should take home at the end of the day is this. God makes new beginnings to continue his good kingdom on earth. God makes new beginnings to continue his good kingdom on earth. As we look at this narrative, we see that even in the midst of destruction and God destroying humankind and destroying animals and and allowing the rains to subside and to cause all this damage, that God was protecting his kingdom and his plan. And he had to do that by starting a new beginning. There's three things we want to see in this text when we think about the story of Noah. The first thing we want to see is this theme of God's judgment, God's judgment, this theme of God's judgment. In verse five of Genesis chapter six, we read these words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. Man was created to know God, and we were created to show off God and to live according to his purpose. But we read in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 that the earth became increasingly wicked, in fact, violently wicked, as a a group, the Nephilim, who was uh, fallen angels, demons, overstepped the boundaries that God has set for them, began to go into forbidden relationships with humans, and as a result, demonic influence hit this world like never before. In fact, in verse number five, we see uh, that the author really wants us to understand just how wicked the earth has gotten. And he trumps phrase after phrase after phrase in order to show us that there was such a darkness on earth. A darkness that caused God to grieve. A darkness that caused God to to be in a state of remorse to say, man, I'm sorry that I even made man. Look at how he describes the wickedness that's on earth. He says in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It wasn't just in the earth, it was great. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you see that? Every intention of the thoughts. Last week we talked about how our thoughts determine our habits. That every intention of every human being on earth was evil. It was set against God. Kim Jong-un of North Korea, North Korea's dictator, is an evil man. And you can hear stories and read stories and find stories of just how evil he is. I want you to imagine North Korea's dictator and then imagine the whole earth being filled with people like that. It was an evil that was unknowing to the world. The world all over is messed up right now, but I don't think that this can be said about the world. I don't think that this can even be said about America, that every person had an evil heart and evil thoughts. There was a 
violence about these people. Verse 13 says, For the earth was filled with violence through them. Every part of the earth was filled with violence. It was an ugly, 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 ugly sight. So what did God determine to do? Verse 11 through 24 of chapter 7 lets us know that God decided to blot out humanity on earth and he decided to blot out everyone except eight persons, Noah and his family. He said, this is the remedy. It's gotten so bad that my kingdom is at stake. This promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that from the seed of a woman there will, will come a child who would crush the serpent's head. Demonic influence was so heavy that God said, I am going to blot out everyone. And we read the story and we see that through rain, God did it. Now, when we hear this, we normally have two types of responses. The first response is to, to ignore passages like this and to try to let maybe God off the hook. To say the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. And simply to just try to ignore the fact that God killed and wiped out probably millions of people. And then there's a second response. And the second response or, or, or that we see that people, extreme, that people like to think in is, is that God is not just for doing this. And that they can't serve a God who would kill millions of people because of their disobedience. But what we have to understand is that as we read this story, we learn something about God. And what we learn about God is that God was deeply grieved at the state of the world. He was deeply grieved. In chapter 6, Verse 6, we see that his heart was broken. And why was God's heart broken? His heart was broken because God hates sin and sin's consequences. And when someone or people is progressing in sin and living in sin, it breaks his heart because God is a holy God, a perfect God, and he knows that sin and disobedience towards him, it stops human flourishing. Sin hinders human flourishing. It breaks the heart of God. The Bible says that God, he desires, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he desires that all would be saved. God doesn't want to condemn and he doesn't want to destroy anyone. But he will. He desires that all would be saved, he says. He hates sin. And he hates the consequences of sin. And he was deeply grieved. But what we also want to see in the story, that God is patient. God is patient. You say, how could God be patient? And he killed all of these people. And he only let eight people live. I can't serve a God like that, but what you're missing is God's patience. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, Peter says this. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Did you hear that? It says, 
that God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It took Noah anywhere from 75 to 120 years to build the ark. Catch this. God came to Noah and said, Noah, start building the ark. I am grieved with this people's sin. Every thought, every intention of people is evil. They are overly uh, sexual. They're not honoring the covenant of marriage. They are violent towards each other. He said, build an ark. And it took Moses anywhere between 70, uh, Noah, anywhere between 75 and 120 years to build. That shows us how patient God is. God is perfectly holy. He is the creator. He created us to glorify him. He created us with a purpose to praise him, to know him. He created the heavens and the earth, the galaxies, the deeps of the ocean. He knows the very numbers of hairs that's on our head. And for the creation to rebel against the creator and to go the exact opposite way that the creator has chosen for him to go. It is astonishing and amazing that God would not only wait 120 some odd years to bring his wrath on earth, but that he would wait 120 seconds. How can we as creation call God unjust? When we intentionally rebel against them. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, when talking about God's attributes and looking at this theme of patience, says this marvelously was God's patience exercised and manifested towards Israel. Throughout the whole Bible, we see that he's patient. First, he suffered their manners for 40 years in the wilderness. Later, when they had entered into Canaan, but followed the evil customs of the nations around them and turned to idolatry, though God chastened them sorely, he did not utterly destroy them, but in their darkness raised up deliverers from them. When their iniquity was raised to such a height that none but a God of infinite patience could have bore them, he, notwithstanding, spread them many years before he allowed them to be carried down into Babylon. Finally, when their rebellion against him reached a climax by crucifying his son, he waited 40 years until he sent Romans against them. And that only after they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. God is patient. As believers, we ought to see that God is patient and we ought to remember how patient God was towards us because there was once a time when we were in darkness but God set his grace and his mercy upon us. We ought to live out of that gratitude knowing that God could have wiped us out at any time, but instead he chose to open his ark of salvation and to allow us to run to Jesus. 
And there may be someone here today who does not know Jesus and you don't have a relationship with them. I want to encourage you to run to Jesus, to, to know God, because God is being patient towards you to run into the ark of salvation, repent of your sins, confess and agree with God. I have messed up. Praise God that he sent Jesus for your salvation. Don't wait another minute. Give your life to Jesus. Because God's patience does run out. And that's what we see in the story of Noah, that God's patience turned to judgment. And that's what we see throughout the Bible. We see a patient God who, at certain points, his patience run out. We see that in the story of Cain, in the story of Noah, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the story of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, in the story of the Jews as they wandered for 40 years, in the story of the Babylonian exile. We see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, that one day God will come back as judge. Jesus said that a second destruction is coming, but this time is not one of water. This time is one of fire, says Peter. We ought to not take God's patience for granted. Second thing we see running throughout the story of Noah is not not only God's judgment, but we see Noah's faith. We see Noah's faith. Look at chapter 6, verse number 9. says, these are the generations of Noah... Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Jephthah. So we see in this passage that Noah is regarded as a righteous man, that he was regarded as blameless in his generation, and then we see that he walked with God. This is the second time that phrase is used in Genesis. It's first used when speaking of Enoch, a man who walked with God. The Bible doesn't give great detail about Enoch. In fact, it doesn't mention anything great that he did other than he walked with God, which presupposes that God is just pleased, not not in the spectacular and, and in the big things, right? You don't have to build an ark in order to please God, but rather you can walk walking with God and the everyday mundaneness of life pleases him. Now we look at this passage and say, wow, look how great Noah is. Great Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless. He was the only one in his entire generation. The whole world was wicked and given into sexual sin and violent, but Noah stood strong. And it's very easy for us to have a moralistic sermon and for me to turn this sermon and to go and be like Noah. Do like Noah. But that's not what God wants. Noah's works isn't what made him blameless. Noah wasn't righteous in and of himself. He wasn't some superhuman being. Noah's first righteousness, his first layer of righteousness, the one that most mattered was one that was imputed upon him, that was given to him because he had faith in God. In Hebrews chapter 11, We read these words, Hebrews 11, verse 6 and 7, and it says these words. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's righteousness was a result of him having faith in God. The rest of the world did not have faith in God. What is faith? In the Greek, faith is a simple word. It just means to trust. It means to trust. It means to trust in God. Faith is a disposition of the heart that says, F-A-I-T, for all I trust him. It's a disposition of the heart that says, for all I trust him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith, without a heart that says, for all I trust him, it is impossible to please him. It is something that We are granted and that we have as a result of the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and giving us the grace to believe in God. It is something as believers that we have to fight for daily as as sin and doubt tries to weigh on us and the examples that we see in the world tries to, to sway us. It is something that we have to take to God. We have to take our hearts to God and say, God, I believe God. I have faith, but help my unbelief. Faith is being willing to give God your unbelief. Noah had faith, and his faith was grounded in a fear of God. It says that he had a reverent fear. He saw the bigness and the wideness of God. He believed that God could take him out at any time. Do you know how big God is? It is a a horrible analogy for me to use because it it, it fails to, 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 to show off the bigness of God. But here's one. God is like a human being compared to an ant. Just like we have ants at our disposals, God has not only us at his disposal, but the whole world at his disposal. And we should reverently submit to him and fear him. But here's the good news about God, is that God is not evil. The Bible says that God is love. And I would have a problem if a God who was love or who was sovereign was not love, but he is. We could put our faith and trust in him. Think about how much faith it took for Noah to have. The Bible says that God came to Noah and God gave Noah a word. He says, I am going to destroy everyone and I'm going to decreate. God created. Now he's decreating and then I'm going to recreate. And Noah, guess what? I want to use you to do it. And I'm only going to save you, your three sons and their wives. I'm not going to save anyone else. But there's one more thing, Noah. You have a huge part to play in your family being saved. You have to build an ark. You have to build a boat. How much faith that would take? Hebrews chapter 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. That means the things that you cannot see, you count it as substance, as reality. But the evidence or the conviction of unseen, that's what Noah had. He said, wait a minute, Lord. See, faith takes God at his word. And that's what Noah did by God's grace. God gave him the strength to take him at his word. Could you see Noah? 
In the midst of a wicked generation, Noah telling his sons, come help me, we've got to start cutting down some trees. Come help me, we've got to start sanding the the, the trees down to make it smooth. Can you see Noah? For 75 to 120 some odd years working on an ark, and it was just him. They didn't have bulldozers. They didn't have big machines. They had their bare hands in hope. They had their bare hands in God's word. Living in the midst of an evil generation. Can you use your holy imagination to see the generation mocking him? No, what in the world are you doing? Why are you building this thing? The Bible says that Noah built a big ark. In fact, in the story, we read its measurements from verses 11 to 22 as we read. And I'm going to save you all the cubics and all the, these big things. I'm just going to tell you what uh, uh, most people say how big it was. They said it was, about the av- it was about the size of a NFL football field and a half. Four men, four women, working on a very, really sophisticated in some ways, especially for them back then, ark. All because God spoke to Noah. And Noah had a heart's disposition that said, for all I trust him. We're all sinners, and we all fall short of God's glory. A friend of mine had told me that to help him build a boat because God told him to do it. For the first year, I might be encouraging. But after that, doubt's going to start setting in. Can you see Noah's family? Noah, are you sure <laughs> that God told you to do this? Maybe we should just hire other people. Noah. This isn't your expertise. (laughs) But the Lord gave him the grace to persevere. Where are you in life? What in God's word has God been challenging you in? Maybe it's it's some relationships or some friendships that you know that's not healthy. Maybe it's, it's a calling that you know God has called you to, but fear is keeping you from it. I just want to encourage you to have faith in God. Beg God, God, give me a heart that says, for all I trust you. And work, even when you don't see how it's going to come about. The Bible says that Noah obeyed God in everything in this passage. That's what I want. Job chapter 27, don't turn there, but verses 1 through 6, I want you to go home and read it. It's absolutely amazing. Job has had everything stripped from him, and he's got some friends who love him, but who has some messed up theology. And they are trying to convince Job that the reason that he is suffering is because he has committed some great sin. And I love what Job said in that passage. He basically says this. He says, God has made my soul bitter. But he says, I refuse to lose integrity. I refuse to lose my righteousness. Sometimes it's easy to obey God when certain things are in order. But but can you trust him 
when you can't trace them. None of us can in our own strength. You will only be able to do that if you are looking to Jesus daily and begging him to give you the power. We see in the story that Noah then gets all the animals together. Man, that had to be a faith walk, right? I mean, not only is he a builder now, uh, but he's a wildlife manager, right? I mean, could you imagine trying to chase down two of every kind of animal? <laughs> but he, God gave him the grace to do it. Because if God calls you to something, he's going to see you through it. And he brought two of every kind, and he put them on this boat. Last, final point. Not only do we see God's judgment and his patience in his judgment, not only do we see Noah's faith, now we're encouraged to have faith in God even when we don't see it, to have a conviction. That's what faith is. It's not something that's imaginary or vague. It's a conviction. It's a come heck of hot water, I believe God and his word. It's like even when I don't feel like I'm loved, when I don't feel like my life should be on this trajectory to know that a righteous man's steps are ordered by the Lord and to keep pushing. Third, we see God remembers Noah. Last theme of this passage is God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. In your bulletin we have, if you could uh, open that up, I want to show you something. If you open it up, you have like kind of a weird shaped thing going on there. <laughs> and, and basically what this is, is that's a chiastic uh, structure. It's a literary form. And basically what a chiastic structure is, is it is a, a literary way of writing, a way of writing that has parallel statements in reverse. So a, a chiasm or a chiasmus is a statement that one makes, and then they make the same statement just in reverse order. Okay? The book of Genesis is masterfully written. God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used Moses to write a masterpiece. The Noah story is written with great detail and intention, probably in order to, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in order to help uh, the Jews, who was an oral culture, to pass the story along. Okay? So when you think about Genesis and you think about the Bible, you're thinking, man, whoever wrote this, man, they must have been like high or something, because some things don't make sense. That's not, that's not what's going on. They weren't having a, a mere fantasy or some, some type of thing. This was something that the Holy Spirit empowered them to write and gave them direction, and it's a masterpiece. It's well thought out. But let me show you how Moses wrote this piece in order for us to see what the, what the central theme is in this story. If you notice, A, 
on your worksheet, or maybe behind you, A, shows that there is violence in God's creation. That's the very first line, right? Now, if you look at the bottom, A, you'll see that there's a, a parallel statement, but it's just reverse. Instead of there being violence in God's creation, we see that at the end of the Noah story, that there is a covenant blessing and peace. So look at the B. There's a resolution that God makes in chapter 6, verse 13 through 22, to destroy the earth. And then we look at the B, God's resolution to preserve order. So it's the opposite. C, a command for Moses to enter the ark. And C, at the bottom, a command to leave the ark which is found in verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. D, the beginning of the flood, verse, chapter 7, verse 11 through 16. D, the drying of the earth, chapter 8, 6 through 14. E, the rising floodwaters, chapter 7, verse 17 through 24. E, the receding floodwaters, chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. And right in the middle of the story, chapter 8, verse 1 through 2, we see a verse that says these words. But God remembered Noah. The author in a chiasmic structure normally puts right in the middle of the story God's main point. God's main point in this passage is not that he's just going to destroy us and he's a mean God who wants to pounce on us. It is this. It is that God remembers those who are in covenant with him. It's the main story of Noah. It's the main story that God wants you to remember as Christians. That no matter what is going on, if you have run into Jesus and he is your ark of salvation, that no matter how long or how bad it gets, that he will remember you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In the midst of a traverse and troubling generation, in the midst of a world that seems as if it is getting more godless, in the midst of your prayers seemingly seeming to not be answered, God wants you to know this morning that he remembers you. He has set his affections on you if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. God, remember Noah. Bible says that he went into covenant with them. We read that earlier. He promised Noah that he was going to destroy the earth but bring his family out. And throughout this passage, you can go home and read it again. You'll see a number of promises that God tells Noah that, that, that this is going to be set, this covenant is going to be set. What is a covenant? A covenant is a, a binding commitment. When God goes into covenant with us, he goes into a commitment with us that cannot be broken. He went into a covenant with Noah, and this covenant was not going to be broken. It is an unbreakable commitment that God makes towards us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 and 7, God gives us a promise. As we're in this New Testament covenant, he gives us a promise, and that promise is that he is a rewarder of those who diligently or sincerely seek him. He is a rewarder. Now, I want you to imagine Noah. I want you to imagine all he's been through, 75 to 120 plus years of 
working on his ark, of, of looking at people who seem to be blessed and who are violent and who are sleeping around. I want you to know that he's a human being. There had to be some moments of doubt. There, there had to be some moments of weariness. There had to be some moments of tiredness. But I want you to see Noah just plugging away. Even though he doesn't see it, he has a conviction that God is faithful. Now I want you to see that Noah loads everyone on board and these animals and his stinking and people have attitudes and his kids are grumpy and his wife is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then all of a sudden it starts raining and and he's getting on people's nerves and it starts raining and they're hearing screams and hollers and they're watching dead bodies float on the water and it rains for 40 long days and it just keeps coming. And then after the 40 long days, we read that there's 150 days where the waters are triumphing and there's 150 days where the water is, begins to wane and then there's a 40-day wait. Then they begin a process of 14 days to sending out the bird in order to see if the land is right. That's a long time to be boxed into this. And anyone on a ship under these circumstances will begin to wonder if God had forgotten about them. But the Bible says in chapter 8, verse 1, he remembers. Good thing to know that God remembers. And what a, what a big theme that we see throughout Scripture that God remembers. This concept of God remembering those who are faithful. We see the same terminology Lee Anderson Jr. says throughout uh, in Abraham. We see it in the life of Rachel. God says the same thing. The Bible says the same thing to Hannah. God says the same thing that he remembered her. We see prayers of the saints throughout the years praying, God, remember me. We see Samson praying that prayer, David praying that prayer, Hezekiah praying that prayer, Jeremiah praying that prayer. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah after he gets a feat done, he says, Lord, just remember me. Does anybody have that in their heart today? Lord, just remember me. Just remember me. Does anybody go through anything where you're like, Lord, where are you? Just remember me. Life sometimes gets hard. Arthritis sometimes get on my nerve. Lord, just remember me. The Bible says if we are in covenant with God that he says, I remember you. Wait upon the Lord again, I say wait. For those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of evil. They shall run and not faint. They shall walk and not be weary. God remembers you. And anytime you think that God does not remember you, I just want you to remember what God did for you on the cross. Because you were in a flood, my sister. You were in a flood, my dear brother. You were overcome with your sin. The Bible says that while we're still sinners, God loved us. But over 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on Calvary's cross on Golgotha's hill. And on that hill, he said, I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever will believe in him, have faith in him, say, for all I trust him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is a promise. That's a promise. And when we know that God remembers us, we're free to serve him. We're free to serve. God gives us new beginnings 
in order that we will represent his good kingdom on earth. Why do I say that? Because if you're a Christian and God has saved you from your sin, you know that God is going to remember you, you know that he's in covenant with you, you know that he's faithful to you, then you understand that the reason that God made you new is not for the sake of being new. It's not for the sake of merely going to heaven, but it's for the sake of being an ambassador for him. Noah was spared from the flood in order that he and his family would be ambassadors for God. You were spared from your sins. You were spared from darkness. You were transformed into the marvelous light in order that you would be his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God spared you in order that you would represent him on this earth and spread his good kingdom. And when you believe in the midst of your child, trial that God remembers you, you're free to be an ambassador for him. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your anguish, you still talk about the goodness of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 called Noah a preacher of righteousness. While he was working on that boat, he was preaching righteousness. He was preaching the salvation. Until this ark comes by faith in God. And that's what God has called each of us to do. While you're working on the things that God has called you to do, while you're at work, be an ambassador, be a preacher of faith. Tell your co-workers that salvation does not come by works, it comes by faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to serve you. I pray, Father God, that you would help us, Lord, to to see Jesus and help us to live by faith. You may not have called us to build an ark, but you've called us to build our families. You've called us to build good rapport at our job. You've called us to be good students at school and to submit to teachers' authorities. You've called us to be good deacons who look to you by faith and and faithful pastors. And and you've called us, Father God, to, to, to love you, give us the strength to do it. Help us not to be discouraged. Help us to remember that you remember. Thank you, Father God, for choosing to forget one thing, and that's the sins that we repent of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask you to... uh,